Welcome to the NPM podcast. I'm John Burke, managing editor of NPM. Uh, I will let my uh, guests introduce themselves today. Thanks for having me, John. Uh, Chris Lawand, I lead up FTI Consulting's Global Power Renewables and Energy Transition Practice. FTI uh, is a global consulting firm. We operate in about 40 countries around the world. We're New York Stock Exchange listed. Uh, in my practice, we work across renewables technologies. We provide strategic market entry and transaction advisory, business optimization services, and restructuring assistance when there's challenging circumstances, as, as, as well as uh, we have an investment banking group within the firm as well. And we have a core of our team that are licensed investment bankers. Uh, it is a global su supply chain and investment uh, uh, area so that renewables uh, er folks that we work with are often foreign parties uh, uh, complementing the domestic side, uh, entering the U.S. and then U.S. capital investing elsewhere as well. Um, the strategic operational and financial breadth of what we do, I think it gives us a unique perspective. Uh, it's, a, it's a broad team. We cover really across technologies. So there, there, there's breadth in what we uh, in what we have to offer. Thanks, Chris. And uh, just to remind me before we go into it, FTI is actually sponsoring the podcast today. Uh, and I think uh, Chris gave a good sense um, that we're going to touch a lot of uh, macro issues today facing the clean energy sector uh, as the uh, first half of the year uh, has been quite busy. And the first half of the year is not over yet for another uh, six weeks or so. Anyway, so let's get into it. Um, there was a recent uh, decision by President Biden to veto the attempts by both sides of Congress to, the, to repeal the two-year moratorium on solar tariffs. Uh, based on your experience, uh, what did the solar industry stand to lose if he went in the other direction? Look, as was expected, Biden vetoed the legislation this week. It was passed on a bipartisan basis in both the House and Senate and was really aimed at reinstating tariffs on Chinese solar panels associated with unfair trade practices. The, the politicians that, that, that sought the tariffs, um, they're using protectionism of U.S. jobs, Chinese human rights violations, and, and really just a general concern about the budget deficit is the key premise that were put forward. The overall impact would have been massive if these tar tariffs had been reinstated, and it, it would have led to material uh, increases in project costs and, and probably lots of projects being canceled. Uh, the U.S. solar supply chain, it, it falls short of being able to provide the equipment required to meet uh, the ambitious goals that are really being put in place. And it, it's not expected that a veto will occur. Uh, it would require two thirds of the majority in, in both houses to make that happen. So while the repeal of the, the, the tariff moratorium would have immediately increased the costs, um, really through 2024, the medium and longer term impacts of this, they're expected to be less of an issue. Uh, the industry overall and, and, and what we see with developers and, and financing parties that is expecting tariffs on, on cells and modules on the imports to be placed from 2024 onwards. But there's a lot of action going on today that's going to allow parties to, to really avoid substantially the tariffs. Uh, you know, U.S. polysilicon, it can already keep up with domestic demand. Module capacity, it's not there yet, but there's a lot of build out going on. It should be there by next year. With ingots, wafers, and cells, it's another story, and it's going to remain reliant on the international supply chain. But these the should be able to avoid the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection, Protection Act and, and the 201 tariffs to really uh, moderate any potential impacts going forward. 
Um, are you hearing uh, how the Department of Commerce might weigh in on this when they make their uh, final determinations, I guess now expected in August, uh, regarding the ADCBD or anti-dumping countervailing duties uh, circumvention investigation? Yeah, look, it, it remains to be determined, but it kind of holds to what I you know, just said, that uh, if, if something is in, put in place uh, before 2024, the, the impact will decline over time. Um, a major impact from this, there's going to be a lot of pressure for it not to happen. So uh, I think that's heavily moderated the risks. Great. Thanks for that. So moving to Texas, uh, which uh, up until this year had been uh, the hotbed of um, renewable uh, development um, from for both solar and wind and uh, very much as of late storage. Uh, as people were building uh, battery storage and mass through merchant. Um, but lately, there's been measures that have been out there um, introduced in the Texas uh, side of things, um, such as SB6, to grow natural gas, uh, while renewables remains largely credited for preventing future blackouts in the state, such as what happened with Winter Storm Uri. Um, again, just trying to get your sense, Chris, or perspective about why this is happening and ultimately do you think there's going to be enough pressure that that's going to they're going to just soften their stance from where they were yeah it's interesting look system reliability and renewables option is the core issue here uh the duck curve and what's been promoted in california is is really widely referenced um that, that high penetration of renewables it's, it's going to complicate grid management uh, is renewables are seen as you know non-dispatchable versus foreign fossil fuel uh, generators, natural gas peaker plants, et cetera. Uh, energy storage from lithium-ion batteries, uh, it, it can alleviate the intermittencies in renewable energy, but it's still really expensive. And the supply chain for the battery technology, it's outside of Texas. So it's not like there's a you know a benefit. it's 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 product coming into Texas. The proponents of SB6, they, they primarily are going to point to this dispatchability of natural gas as being a key, as well as lower cost, given the heavy amount of natural gas that resides in Texas. And the supply chain also resides within the U.S. You don't have to look outside the U.S. for natural gas. Uh, it's here. So there's there's relative, relatively few op, uh, oppositions um, based upon the reliability argument where the opposition comes from is really based on cost and is it going to burden the tax the ratepayers more uh, or beyond what's being put forward and the expectations and really at the core of it, it's the principles of the ERCOT market design um, you know the the opponents are going to argue that the SB6 plan it's 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 very much undermining the pro market uh, the, the orthodoxy that would disrupt the, the the market pricing mechanisms for for power and for energy more broadly in ERCOT so there's a lot of play. It's it's high stakes with regard to what's going through. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, have you gotten any sense uh, from where the governor weighs on this in Texas currently? Well, the governor is not going to be pro-renewables. Yeah. Got it. I mean, we've seen this. Uh, in a variety of ways, you know, that this has come up, um, but he's not going to, it has not shown that the willingness to to really sort of protect the advancement of this space and the uh, the jobs build out the, the other benefits that it preserves. Got it. 
So um, just shifting over to transmission, which is um, what you alluded to earlier, such an important part of how we grow uh, clean energy in this country. And, um, you know, what was uh, an irony, I guess, about the Inflation Reduction Act was while it um, gave tax credits to every imaginable type of clean energy, uh, transmission um, was pretty much omitted from that, that bill. Um, there was grant money put into uh, Build Back Better, um, the Infrastructure Act back in November of 2021. Um, but of course, when you talk about a couple of billions versus the transmission problem in the U.S., you need more than that, you know, to, 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 to plug that gap. So I guess I wanted to get your sense about why do you think transmission never made it into this the, into the bill? And what steps do you think need to be taken to to grow uh, that end of um, the business? No, sure, John. So, look, I'm sorry, where, where I, we... I just want to um, stress I did say a loaded question there, Chris. So please answer to the best of your abilities. <laughs> Full acknowledgement. No okay. So, look, where we need to be is a different place than where we are now. Okay. Uh, in the four years to 2016, there was three times the transmission bill then in the four years to 2021, right? The NIMBY issues is, are cropping up. There's, there's a whole bunch of reasons this is happening. And we need to grow overall transmission by about 50% between now and the end of the decade in order to stay on track. Um, that, 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 that basically means more than twice the pace at which we're building out transmission now. And if grid buildup and modernization doesn't, then many of the benefits of the IRA just simply won't be realized. There won't be a, a way to, to, to transmit the electrons where they need to go. So permitting on the front end and interconnection queues on the back end, these are key, key drivers of, of what's going on. Uh, there's a lot of things embedded within that, the NIMBY issues and, 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 and many other things that need to be addressed. But transmission, look, it's not it's, there is some support within the IRA. It's just not as significant as many had hoped and felt required, all right? The grid deployment office at the Department of Energy, it's it's got about $3 billion of financing support for transmission, uh, including both direct loan authority and grants to support siting and also offshore wind. So there are ways that this could be utilized. And um, you know, we do, we, we work often with the Department of Energy loan program office. We're, we're seeing... Uh, some transmission applicants coming through that we're privy to uh, and that are being processed at the present. But like you said, this is uh, well below what really needs to be done to transform uh, the, the transmission grid. Um, do you think there are enough developers out there willing to build new transmission to support this, or do you think there needs to be more currently? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question. Uh, well, we would always benefit from more. But the issue is these are major capital projects that take a long period of time to complete, very expensive, many hurdles to get through, creates a ton of uncertainty, and it really takes a certain type of company, which is going to be, which is going to limit those that can really uh, provide a, a, a variety of the things that need to be done. Um, I had a recent conversation with someone who's fairly senior at a, uh, at, at a, uh, someone who's, who builds out transmission projects, and he's basically spent most of his career on one project, <laughs> right? You know, th these just take a long time. Uh, th there's participants in areas, but more holistically, yes, we would benefit. Appreciate that. Uh, and I'm, of course, alluding to uh, some of the, the major uh, companies out there as uh, re renewable and transmission developers like NextEra, 
and pattern energy and Invenergy. They they all have their own separate projects and to Chris's point, all take a long time to develop when you're talking about transmission lines. Right. Um, so shifting gears uh, to energy storage, um, obviously it's becoming a very important part of the ecosystem as a way to provide uh, intermittent and basal resources, particularly as states continue to retire uh, thermal energy sources. And in some instances where uh, things aren't going the way they'd like, uh, provide short-term extensions to set thermal energy sources. Um, you know, where do we sit in terms of the battery storage supply chain, you know, from, you know, the, the base level and also even to the, even to minerals and, and the things needed to build these batteries. Um, just trying to get your sense there. John, you're, you're doing a good job hitting all the big ticket items of the industry right now and where we have problems. Um, so, uh, it, it's 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 a big it's a big problem it's a big deal uh there's there, there's currently there, there's no immediate substitute right now for lithium on a commercial scale for the electrification of mobility for example right for standalone storage at at, at um uh, at, at place and it's required and where it comes from it's often from unsavory locations uh, and it is uh, in an area of increasing protectionism, protectionism as well. So we, our, our practice recently wrote a thought leadership piece uh, on this topic regarding um, what's going on with protectionism. Uh, and you know, as an example, Mexico isn't a major player, but in 2022, it nationalized its lithium mining and it started a bit of a trend. Uh, more recently, Chile, uh, the world's second largest producer has enacted has enacted legislation that private mining firms they have to partner with the state. It's significantly ramping up its control. All right, um, existing projects are going to be pr pr protected, but this is a trend that's going to increase pricing, at least until other sources of lithium are derived, and that can come from recycling becoming more economical, uh, done at a larger scale. Alternative chemistries are being developed but the prices have to come way down to be competitive. And ad adoption, it's not gonna happen on a massive scale until R&D really ramps up and allows that to, to, to support that from occurring. Um, that, that thought leadership piece we did, it's on our team's website, which is which is uh, fticonsultingpower.com if anyone would like to read it in its entirety. Are there any uh, technologies out there that do seem promising like vanadium for instance, or, or anything of that nature? So interestingly, our team has done a lot of work with battery technologies. We have a number of uh, chemists actually within our practice. Um, a, a variety of this has been either uh, with the Department of Energy Loan Program Office as part of its ATVM program, uh, where it's uh, financing different uh, parts of the electric vehicle uh, value chain. Um, and this does look at alternative chemistries, right? And there are things that we're seeing that look compelling at small scale, but it's how can it ramp? How can the cost curve come down and be uh, accelerated? And it all comes down to um, the amount of dollars that are spent on R&D in order to enable that happen. And necessity is the mother of invention. Um, there's a, a variety of things that we're seeing. Uh, you mentioned vanadium, you know, there, there's, there's different things, but it's going to take a real driver to make it occur. And some of the catalysts are happening right now. Got it. Um, yeah, and the uh, the developers we talked to, because we, we bring that up quite a bit, you know, 
you're focused on lithium ion when you're talking about growth and they all mostly say, yeah, for the most part we are. And, you know, they, they, they do see adoption of these other technologies on the horizon, but they're all kind of laser like focused where they are in the, the, at least the short to medium term and just building out through lithium ion systems. Correct. Uh, um, so getting, uh, staying on the, the macro uh, wave here, um, we've seen um, quite a bit in up, of an uptick. And I, I, I hesitate to use this year, I think just more broadly over this year and last year too, uh, an increase of private credit transactions uh, supporting renewable development. Um, I'd say that the, the best way to, to describe it is it's more uh, hold co debt. Uh, where you can get a, a clip a higher coupon. It's not single site or, or non-recourse to a single project, um, but it's to um, do all the things that need to take place before a project goes to construction. Um, and I, I think it probably speaks to a, a few things, you know, that we've been observing, you know, the interconnection fees have gone up considerably as have wait times in certain jurisdictions like PGM and MISO. Um, and these things just take, you know, time and money to preserve the optionality. Um, and so uh, I'm kind of sensing that these two trends are colliding in that sense, but wanted to get uh, your view in terms of, of where the private credit market is intersecting uh, with the renewable industry and whether that's going to continue to increase and, and why. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. And we're seeing some different types of private uh, credit come into the picture as well as the economy evolves, all right? Um, there's an increasing risk of a, of a recession. Inflation rates are, you know, they're, they're, they're dipping a little bit relative to where they were, but they're still stubbornly high. Interest rates are high. And there's still quite a, you know, quite a bit of challenge associated with private credit coming into the picture. For, for a whole host of reasons. Um, I think that uh, where, where these businesses have operated and the requirements that they have, as you sort of a, a alluded to, um, preserving optionality has been important. Interconnection queues, queues are massive. People want to get into it as quickly as they can. Deposits have become a big deal for solar equipment. Uh, supply chains have been twisted up uh, and concerns about not having panels and be able to build out projects on time. That's sucking up a ton of capital for parties. So it is requiring sometimes um, healthy businesses to go out and look for additional capital in advance of when they thought they otherwise needed it. And it's taking some creative sources to try to meet those needs. All right. So it is we're seeing it evolve, I guess, in, like I said, in terms of some of the types of players being becoming involved with it um, and how financings are getting done. Now, more, more broadly, you know, with how financings are are occurring, um, what's going on with tax equity is frankly, it's just it's it's interesting. It's always been interesting because it evolves and it changes so quickly. Uh, the need is growing significantly, uh, and it is um, how that's going to get fulfilled is it's had to, it's having to change. Right, we've been at this range of fifteen to twenty billion dollars of tax equity being provided by a handful of parties. And now transferability and direct pay are going to become a major catalyst for the, the very significant increase in tax equity that's going to be required. But this is going to take months into years for this to work itself out 
in terms of rules being clarified and how the market develops around it. Um, look, the thought is that these changes are going to drive the, the current market capacity for tax equity going up three or four X from where it is currently. It's needed, uh, given all the support mechanisms that are revolving around um, tax credits and how they're applied and how they're used by, by, by folks. So it's look, this could be its own podcast on this topic. Um, but uh, it's it, it, there, there's a lot to unpack right now with regard to to capital and how it's being sought and deployed. Yeah, and we should just uh, address the the equity side of that equation too before we depart from the capital markets. Um, obviously, um, what's emerged as an interesting trend again, and and we just don't know how big this wave is going to crest. But there continues to be platforms that trade in renewables. I mean that that's uh, maybe been a little bit of a a foreign or emerging market fund bid into the industry because of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, creating a very good environment for them. Um, but, you know, it's that's part of it. You know, there's, there's other domestic deals that are being done and, and corporates that are adding to their capacity. And uh, Brookfield's continuing to get bigger with their various pools of capital. Um, don't mean to single them out, but again, they've bought, you know, into three different platforms over the past year just in utility scale solar and storage development um so there's still like a lot of activity out there and i, I guess i want to while we're here talking about it get your thoughts on whether this is healthy or maybe a function of what needs to be done as you're getting bigger these projects are getting bigger and bigger and the demand keeps getting bigger and bigger if, it, if it's a healthy thing or not again proviso loaded question chris but go for it yeah no I understand john uh, there's a lot of different ways to answer that. Uh, yeah, look, there, there was the, the, the level of, of M&A activity significant, you know, has significantly dropped from where it was a year ago. Um, there's still deals going on. We're seeing it. We're participating in it. Uh, parties are, are um, I, I, the, the water's overall rising in the industry, right? I think everybody can see that. But we're at a diffi difficult economic point. And also a difficult point was sorting out some of the near term issues regarding how projects are going to be completed, how they're going to be uh, built, completed, and kind of how the, all the rules are going to, going, to, going to sort themselves out. And just such a quickly evolving industry. And this is from the federal to the to the state to the, the local level. So in terms of transactions and the variety of transactions and, and parties you know, coming in and, and buying out platforms, um, we're seeing uh, more and different types of deals where uh, there's there can be a desire to, to, to be in control, but there's a need for a balance sheet and provide liquidity in different ways uh, into these platforms as well. Um, so it is, it really, it, it's, it's really, it's been almost market by market, you know, the technologies, across the technologies, we're seeing some varying trends, um, but it is, I, I think, kind of the, the economic overhang is having a impact that's going to pick up over the course of the year as well in terms of slowing some of these things down. Okay. Uh, thanks for that. Um, and just to conclude, um, we're gonna, we were just talking before you alluded to it about the loans program office. Um, if you could just maybe walk quickly through uh, your work with them. Oh, sure. So look, the DOE LPO, it, it's very much evolved with the IRA. Uh, the LPO it was originally set up in the mid 2000s uh, when President Bush was in office. Uh, 
And there's a whole variety of loans that were issued during uh, his term and then uh, Obama's tenure as well. Some were very successful uh, with the foundation of, of, of capital that was brought in for Tesla. Some weren't. So, uh, Solyndra was a lot was a large, widely publicized solar deal that was that failed a little over a decade ago. Um, the loans are designed to support innovative, low carbon technology, um, so they inherently have some some higher risk associated with them. But overall, the default rates have been fairly consistent with what you would expect with a commercial bank. Um, the LPO essentially bridges the bankability for this innovative technologies with a high impact on energy uh, technology and, and reducing carbon footprints. Um, now, the IRA, it's really grown and its dry powder is now at over $350 billion um, through various programs. There's Title 17 which has 40 billion for innovative clean energy, and also 250 billion for energy uh, infrastructure reinvestment. And then there's, uh, with, with various pools, 55 billion for uh, advanced technology vehicle manufacturing, and then about 3 billion for tribal. So you add all that up, you're getting to 350 plus. Now, the LPO has been an important client for our practice. We've helped applicants uh, get ready for and navigate the LPO's processes, but we've also been hired uh, by the LPO as its market and financial advisor on, on, on a wide variety of loan applications across the programs. Um, the LPO, and you'll, you've probably seen Jager Shaw and some of the other leaders of the LPO out there um, looking to, to, to drive some deal flow. They're, they're eager to issue loans to applicants, um, but, they, but they need those that are really well-prepared for the loan process. Uh, they, they have a tremendous number of applicants but they've got to prioritize where they're where they can where they can proceed in an efficient way. So, you know, what I'll say is that the, this is really a group that's comprised of very smart, innovative professionals. Um, but they've got their handfuls hands full. So, it's a big pool of capital parties can tap into. But you have to show up prepared. You've got to understand the processes. Um, but it does it, it is can be very supportive for a wide variety of businesses, and we've seen them be very creative with some of the things they're looking to get done. Great. Well, Chris, that's about all the time we got. I think we hopefully gave our uh, listeners a, uh, a wide-ranging perspective over the past 30 minutes. But um, thanks for tuning in, and uh, please tune in next time. Uh, Burke out. <laughs>